Good morning, church. Regardless what happens, I don't know, this week or any other week for that matter, God is good all the time. Dios es bueno. Muy bien. Todo el tiempo. Uh, buenos días, mis hermanos y hermanas. Oro para que estés bien. I pray that it's well with all of us this morning. Uh, actually, I pray that just about every day, uh, by, you know, for many by name, certainly as the, you know, for the congregation, the family of God at Antioch, I lift you in prayer every day. Because I believe in prayer, as you do as well. There was a painting, is a painting actually, I've not seen it in person. Um, I've been to the British Museum in London, to the Rembrandt Museum in Amsterdam, but I've never been to the Louvre. I know it's, a, it's something that is on my bucket list, but hanging in the Louvre, painting by a German artist uh, from the, um, he, he actually painted this in 1831, Friedrich Moritz Resch. And when this was first painted, it was called the Chess Players. But over time, the name changed to simply Checkmate by Resch. Let me quickly sort of give you the background of this particular oil canvas. We have on the left the devil. We have on the right, apparently, a young, all the historians I've read call this person, this man, a, um, a teenager. Looks to me like maybe 17 or 18, 19 years old, kind of in medieval dress. They're playing chess, and notice where the chessboard is located. It's on top of a sarcophagus, on a, on a marble sarcophagus of a coffin, and it's pretty clear that the wager of the chess game will be the man's soul, hence checkmate. And notice how Beelzebub, notice how the evil one is, is just... Um, figuring out, I've got this boy, he's mine. Even the boy's guardian angel looks a bit forlorn, does she not? I know they're he's, but, you know, does she not? Does that angel, even the wings are only half spread, and the face is downward cast. The story is told, and I've done some research on it, and as far as I can tell, it's true. In fact, it was corroborated by the uh, Chess Chronicle in Georgia in the early 20th century, meaning were the chess masters of the United States. They, they had their own journal called the Chess Chronicle. And I read the story in the Chess Chronicle as well, but the story is told that a chess master was walking through the Louvre and he sees this painting by Resch, and he looks at it, it just intrigues him, he looks at it and studies it, 
And I don't know how long he stared, but he just stared at it for quite a while, identifying all the places of the chess pieces, you know, the rook, the knight, the bishop, the queen, the king, the pawns. And as he studied it more, he nearly started to laugh. So the story is told that he contacted the curator, at least one of the ones in the Louvre who, who, uh, you know, who worked there, and asked, do you happen to have a chessboard somewhere in this great museum? And all the pieces of the chessboard, all 32 pieces. And the curator said, yeah, I think I do. He goes back and he, you know, rumbles through his office and walks out with the chessboard and all of the correct pieces. And this chess master looked at the painting, and then set the board up just in front of the painting and identically put all the pieces on the chessboard. Then he looks up again and looks down and makes sure they're all correct, looks up again and looks down. And then the story is told that he just began to laugh, to laugh out loud. And the curator asked, why are you laughing? He said, because the boy has one more move and he can win the game. This is not checkmate. This is only check. And the devil thinks he's won the game. But there's one more move. It was actually corroborated years later in Georgia when some chess masters came together, took Resha's work, and all studied the painting, and they concurred. He was right. This game is not over. One more Move. Church, we're coming up to an election that I've heard through the media, both left and right media, that some have said this is the most important election in the history of the United States. That's, that's stretching it, maybe. I think of 1861 with Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. I think that was a momentous election for the welfare of these United States and the prohibition of, you know, the end of slavery. And there have been other elections in our lifetime that are critically important to this great nation that we serve and, and live in. But I would agree this is a very important election. And, of course, we discuss it publicly. We discuss it in groups. We hear it on the TV, we get together with friends and other acquaintances. It seems to be a collective discussion, but in the end, Debbie and I have already voted early, but in the end, you'll walk into the booth, one person. When we voted early, I could not accompany my wife of 48 years. It was not allowed, and that was fine with me. She has her own vote. I have my vote, you know. It, in the end, it is an individual move. Now, you might think, are you implying that our one move is on Tuesday? And I'm going to give you the end of the story of this message. The answer is unequivocally, no, that's not our one move. It's an important move, but that's not our one move that will win the souls, my soul, your soul, the souls of the world, or even the soul of this nation. That's far above what happens on Tuesday. Much more important than that, as I think Tim alluded to in the communion service. You know, 
I don't know about you, but as a 30-year active-duty military guy, I have seen this passage. I've read it. I've memorized it. I've heard it used repeatedly. It's a beautiful text from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And I've seen this text used, and I've heard it right now in the midst of this election where the application is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I, God says, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, it's pretty clear that it's taken out of context. How do I know that? Well, because it occurred 3,000 400 years ago. Actually, that's not true. It occurred, that's another story during the sermon. It occurred nearly 3,000 years ago. Dedication of the temple, we'll go there in a moment, 950 B.C. So if that date's accurate, we're looking at 2,970 years ago. You know, there are two ways to approach the study of Scripture. And I've already told a couple of other um, leaders in our, on our staff, primarily my daughter-in-law, Stacy. I really don't know, Stacy, how long the sermon will go. Normally I do. I really do. I try to keep it within, you know, 25, 30 minutes. Sometimes it goes over because I chase a couple of rabbits like I'm doing now. But, but generally, I, I kind of have an idea. In all honesty, church, I know it's not going to go two hours and it's not going to go five minutes, but everything in between is up, is up in the air. So I bring that up to say that I'm not sure how much time I want to spend on this, but it is, it is an important point, not just for today, but for all Bible study. It was actually alluded to three weeks ago when Patterson was here. I think he alluded to it. Maybe he and I were discussing that um, when we had lunch together. There are only two ways to approach the study of Holy Scripture. There's not a third way, only two. Either you interpret the text, which means that you consider the... Uh, context, and you look at the uh, cultural setting, or you simply lift it out of its, out of its primary uh, text, and you apply it. And you cannot apply something in a, in a godly way without knowing godly principles, biblical principles. So the two ways to approach any Bible text is very clearly, you either look at the text to interpret it as it's written in the Holy Bible, or you lift it from Scripture and you apply it to your daily life using appropriate biblical principles. For example, three weeks ago, Patterson talked about uh, Exodus 14. That was the text. I read the text, the first 10 verses, where we have... Um, where we have the Hebrews who are on their exodus from Egypt, led by God, cloud in the daytime, pillar of fire at night. Um, and so he leads them, and they find themselves, as our brother Patterson put, uh, between a rock and a hard place. The Red Sea was in front of them, and behind them was the Egyptian army. Now, the text itself, the, the interpretive way to approach that is that occurred in the, in the Exodus. That was 1450 years before Christ. So that's nearly 3,500 years ago. I've never seen the Red Sea. Maybe you have. I haven't. I've been to a lot of places, but I've not been to Egypt. I, haven't, I don't know exactly where these places are. I do know that indeed the Egyptian army 3,500 years ago, they were chasing after God's people, two million of them, 
you know, running for their lives, led by Almighty God, right? And they come to the Red Sea. All they saw was doom, doom, doom. They saw death in front of them, so they cried out to the Lord. We know precisely where they were, and I think that's an important point in Exodus chapter 14. It's good for us to be able to pinpoint on the Red Sea, pretty much pinpoint. They were camped in front of Pihahirot, between, I mean, Moses is pretty accurate, you know, um, uh, between Migdol and uh, Baal Sephron. So you could look, you know, scholars can look at this and say, yeah, this is pretty much where they were. Moses thought that to be pretty important to put down, you know, the one who wrote Exodus. So we have, we know where they are, and they were, they were afraid for their lives, and they cried out to the Lord, what did God do? He parted the Red Sea, and the people, his people, walked through on dry land. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians explains that as a baptism. The cloud was above them, the water was on both sides, and the ground was beneath them. They were completely baptizo. They were completely submersed, immersed with God's presence. They walked through on dry land, and then the Egyptian army followed them, and God closed the water, and the army was killed. Now, that's the interpretation. Does it have anything to do with me losing my job or one of my sons becoming ill? Not a thing. No, it's not even relevant if I only look at the interpretation. But the application is entirely different. The application, as Patterson put it, a very clever way with words, he put it, if God leads you to it, he'll lead you through it. Well, the interpretation is if God led the Hebrews to the Red Sea, he will lead them through the Red Sea. The application is if God leads me to a storm in life, he will lead me through the storm in life. God never calls without equipping you. If you ever feel called by God, he will equip you for the calling. So that's interpretation application. So what about 2 Chronicles 7, 14? These are the next two points that I don't know. I could, if this were a class, it could go on for a long time, but I'll, I'm very cognizant that this isn't. First and 2 Chronicles are antecedents to Ezra and Nehemiah. Stay with me because we're going to make the application here, and that's the important part. The Chronicles, in fact, they say the Chronicler was Ezra. First and Second Chronicles record, First Chronicles has 29 chapters, and it records the um, anointing of King Saul and the reign of King Saul and the death of King Saul, the anointing of King David, the reign of King David, and First Chronicles 29, the death of King David. Second Chronicles chapter 1, the, the anointing of Solomon, David's son in Bathsheba, to be the next king of all of Israel, his reign and his death, the anointing of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and the dividing of the kingdom between Rehoboam and Jeroboam just prior to the Babylonian captivity. 
And that's how 2 Chronicles ends, chapter 36. And then Ezra and Nehemiah pick it up there, and they record the history of the Babylonian captivity and Judah, which was then the southern kingdom. So you put all of this in its greater context, and it brings this text alive a little bit. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I can tell you that what this is all about is the temple of God that David pleaded with God to let him build, and the Lord Almighty said, no, but your son Solomon will. And Solomon did precisely that. He built the temple of God in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, called the Temple Mount. Just adjacent to the Temple Mount uh, was the fortress of Zion. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was contained, was, was kept. And remember the Ark of the Covenant, Hebrews 9, 4, contained three items, very important. Why? Because they all reflect God's power and God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant contained Aaron's rod that budded. It contained a golden pot filled with manna, you know, the bread of life from heaven. And it contained the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And that was all located just adjacent to the brand new temple that David had built to the glory of God. It's not yet dedicated, but he built the temple. They moved the Ark of the Covenant to the temple, the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, they put the Ark of the Covenant on an altar. And on both ends of the altar were, were uh, two cherubim, one on one end, one on the other, their long uh, wings reaching over the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim were the same angels, the high order of angels that we read in Genesis who would protect the, the, uh, the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the cherubim were there to protect God's presence. They are always the ones who protect the presence of God. Revelation 4 and 5 talks about the same thing. So you've got these cherubim with their wings over the Ark of the Covenant. David, pardon me, Solomon had built a bronze platform. The bronze platform was about, it's all in cubits, which was 18 inches, but the bronze platform was about eight feet wide and, and eight feet long. It was a square, and it stood about five feet tall. Solomon summoned, 2 Chronicles 5.2, Solomon summoned all of the leaders of Israel, the elders, the heads of all the tribes, thousands were present. Now, you couldn't have millions there. There was not enough room. So he summoned all of the leaders. And all of these thousands of people are surrounding the temple for this moment of dedication. Solomon stands on top of the bronze platform, and then he kneels, the king kneels, and lifts his hands to the heavens, sort of a double posture. You only knelt uh, as a posture of servitude. You lifted your hands as a posture of praise. Solomon did both at the same time. He knelt, and he lifted his hands toward the altar, and he prayed, and it was a long prayer. It took all of 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and it might have been longer than that. Even if you read chapter 6 out loud, it's going to take you a good 10 or 15 minutes. Solomon prayed a lengthy time, and everyone apparently heard him, at least those nearby. And what does he pray for? I'm not going to read the whole thing here. 
But he prayed, for example, verse 24, if your people, he's talking to God, he's on the, on the, the um, bronze platform, he's on his knees and his hands are raised and his face is to the heavens and he's praying to God, to Yahweh. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Verse 26, when there is no rain, when this land suffers drought, when this land suffers famine and pestilence, blight, mildew, locust, caterpillar, plague, or sickness, and we, the people, turn to you on, uh, in this place, by this altar, will you, O oh God, hear our prayers and forgive our sin and heal our land. That's the prayer. Then it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and all the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, what chapter 7 does is, chapter 7 is God's answer to Solomon's prayer. He prayed in chapter 6, God answered in chapter 7. The first answer was no word spoken, just fire. And when the people of Israel saw the fire, in fact, the Bible tells us that the priests in the Holy of Holies couldn't even open their eyes. The, the, the um, glory of God, the Shekinah, was so bright. It was like a, like a nuclear you know, explosion, so bright they couldn't even open their eyes. And all the people outside the temple saw this from a distance. And everyone, nearly on cue, fell on their faces. And they said, Yahweh, the Lord God, his steadfast love endures forever. That was the first day of the feast of the dedication of the temple. The dedication lasted seven days, but, a not, but, but, but another feast followed those seven days. It was the Feast of the Tabernacles. It just so happened they fell together, so we're looking at 14 days of celebration. On the 15th day, Solomon is in his chamber at night asleep, and God wakes him up. And God answers Solomon's public prayer with the private, with the private moment. And he says, Solomon, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's the interpretation of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. What about the application? Was 
when God was speaking those words, although God is sovereign, he knows the future as well. Did anyone of the Israelites or elders or leaders or prophets, did anyone believe that, the, that Solomon's prayer for the dedicatory moment for the temple or that the answer from God applied to some United States of America, you know, 3,000 years later? The answer is absolutely not. It, that, it's, it's crazy. Absolutely not. It, it, the interpretation of 2 Chronicles 7.14 was with Israel and the dedication of the temple and God telling Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and forgive and heal. That's the context of this beautiful text. But what about the application of it? With other biblical principles, would anyone think, maybe the word land, but would anyone say this is not applicable, not only to America today or America 200 years ago or Germany in you know, 1630 or any other country in the world? It's always been applicable. The critical moment is, look at my people. If my people... Originally, in the interpretation, my people were the Jews, were the Hebrews. And what did, you know, what did uh, Jesus tell us in Matthew 5, 17? Think not that I have come to abrogate the law. I've not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill it. We understand that the body of Christ, the church, Ephesians 1, 22, we are God's people. It's pretty clear in Romans 11, that's what Paul meant when he said in Romans 11:26, in this way all of Israel will be saved. He's talking about that, talk about the propitiation. We don't, this is one of those rabbits that I know if I continue will be a little bit long. But you know the wings that covered the Ark of the Covenant by the cherubim and the word cover? It's the same word in Hebrew and in the uh, Septuagint in the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew text, that's used by, by Paul in Romans 3. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is our covering. Just like the cherubim symbolically covered God's presence. It's, it, it all fits together. So, when I pray, can I talk about the unbeliever walking the streets of Nashville? Lord, if they just pray and humble them. No, that's not what the text, that's not how I apply this text. Because this text is addressed to God's people. If my people, make the application, if my people were called by my name, not the name of Muhammad, not the name of Gautama Buddha, not the name of some false god, not the name of, of, of an individual person, not, not the name of humanism. If my people called by mine, he's talking to us. He's talking to the body of Christ, the church. If you, me, if we humble ourselves, and humility has always been the heart of the gospel, you simply cannot approach God in a proud way. It is impossible. It's oil and water. It's a contradiction. It's incongruent. Whatever word you want, it doesn't work. We cannot approach the throne of God in our own power and glory. 
It doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. If my people called by my name will humble themselves, who does it begin with? Well, in my case, it begins with me. Not Debbie, not Tim, me. Can I pray that Tim humbled himself? I guess I could. Will God hear my prayer if I'm a proud, arrogant, conceited man? I don't think so. Is America a theocracy? I mean, the answer is no. We're not a theocracy. We're a democracy with freedom of religion. Are we a theocracy? No. Was Israel a theocracy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Who was their king? Well, when they anointed Saul, God told Samuel, they're not, they're not, uh, forgot the word. They're not dismissing you, Solomon. They're dismissing me. I'm their king. The theocracy. America, theocracy. No, but our great nation, everyone, I can't, I've, just about everyone that I've read, even those scholars who don't believe, this nation was conceived and built on Judeo-Christian principles. Whether you believe it should have been or not, it was. How do we know that? Because isn't the Constitution godless? I don't know if you've done much reading, but Kramnik and Moore years ago, a couple of Cornell professors wrote it, and it's just amazing, called the Godless Constitution. Well, I, I, I looked at it, I read it, and I laughed. I've, I've read other great scholars, James Hudson, who was the, the curator of the, the um, Library of Congress. They're nuts. Now, it is true that it's not a religious document. Drafted in 1787, ratified in 88, and implemented in 89. It wasn't designed to be a religious document. It was designed to be the constitution of a government. But was it imbued with Judeo-Christian principles? Even if you look at the text itself, there are three questionable things that I don't know how anybody could say it's godless. One is the, 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 the oath clauses, you know, every clause that we take. The founders, the framers of the Constitution said it must close with, uh, in God, uh, 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 so help me God. We have the exception clause on Sunday. You, you can work Congress and the House, the, the Senate, the White House, the, the, the uh, judiciary, everyone can work Monday through Saturday, but not on Sunday. There will be no work on Sunday. Why? It's the Christian Sabbath. And then, of course, the very name of the year, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. But I read a book. I actually didn't read it all. just just looked at some excerpts of it. There was a book published years ago uh, written by Donald Lutz. Actually, he was a Compiler. Stay with me, we're not going to go on forever, but this compiler, the, it, it, there were 10 political scientists, and the book, let me start over, but the book is titled, The Origins of American Constitutionalism. The material in the book was compiled by 10 political scientists. The question was, what did the signers of the Declaration, the framers of the Constitution, even the Federalist Papers with Madison and Hamilton and a handful written by John Jay, what our founding fathers, what informed them? What was their world view? 
when, they, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration, when the Constitution was drafted and ratified, what, what, what was the worldview of these founders? And so they did a lot. It took them 10 years for the research. Thousands of letters they uncovered. Thousands of articles and essays and books, whatever, whatever the founders put pen on paper. And there was no telephone, there was no email. We're talking about everything was handwritten. So we've got many thousands of these documents. They discovered that 8%, 8% of all the citations and quotations and all of the uh, support that the founders came up with and they wrote was by a French philosopher of the 17th century, uh, Montesquieu. Stay with me. 4% came from John Locke. Of those, those were the two leading individuals that informed our founders, who, by the way, wrote the Constitution, the Declaration, and this great nation, right? So the question is, what informed them? What worldview did they have? 12%. 12 sentences out of every 100 could be attributed to Montesquieu or to Locke. 34% were direct citations from the Holy Bible. Nearly four out of every ten sentences that our founding fathers used when they would exchange letters, the same worldview they had when they penned the Declaration, the same worldview in 1787 when the Constitution was drafted, the same worldview that even prompted before that all the Federalists, 85 Federalist Papers, Four percent. America is not a theocracy, but our nation was conceived and built on the Judeo-Christian Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Removing God from our public discourse, removing God from the marketplace, removing God from the public square, removing God from the halls of Congress, the judiciary, and the White House, removing God from our universities and our schools, removing God, that was from the very beginning, everything was built on this, removing God leaves vacuum, and vacuums by their very nature have to be filled. They cannot remain a vacuum. And the last generation, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to read much and figure this out. Certainly if you go back two generations, and it's getting progressively worse. God is more and more out of our, out of our discourse, out of everything. We've simply kicked God out. And a vacuum has been filled. Arrogance, belligerence, conceit, a complete disregard for human life, glamorization of sexual immorality. And I could go on and on. It's really the very same list that Paul talks about in Romans 1. Let me read one text for you. Romans 1, verses 29 through 32. Paul is writing, 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, and I still believe we know it, not the church only, I think the average citizen who walks the streets of Nashville knows basically right from wrong. Though they know God's righteous decree, practice such things, deserve to die, and not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I have read for the last several years that the last step to the complete degradation of any civilized society is not sin, even if they don't call it sin. It's not breaking the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not, you know, uh, murder, adultery, steal, lie, covet, the last step to the complete degradation of a civilized society is glamorizing those sins, approving of them. I really hope you will vote. But let me tell you that what I think our last move is. I think our one move is prayer. It's the only recourse I find in Holy Scripture. And I don't mean prayer for just anything. We can pray for all kinds of things. I, it's the prayer needs to be laser-focused that God will be welcomed in our public discourse. And it starts with me, by the way, and you, that God will be once again encouraged to intervene in the affairs of men. Our prayer, our one move that will defeat the devil is not a vote our one move that will defeat the devil and his demons and his human dominions is prayer. Human minions, not dominions. Minions. I wish I had a better close, but obviously, you know, I've thought about this and prayed about it and asked God to help me fulfill my calling. I'm telling you, church, I think this is it. I think we talk about prayer all the time, but we just don't do it very much. I think we pray for our families, but we don't pray, and we pray for the president and for Congress. We need to pray that God get involved in the halls of Congress. We need to see God involved around the Supreme Court, not nine, but ten. And the tenth one is the Holy Spirit, because that's how our nation was conceived and built, and that's the only salvation that we have as a people. Not only the body of Christ and the people of America, but the people of the world. Our last move, our last move is prayer. And we know we will win 
One more. I like this. I like it because the devil, from the moment he was in the Garden of Eden, felt like he was the victor. What a laugh. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? And then he talks about Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, church, in the end, when all is said and done, after Tuesday, listen carefully, God will still be God. Jesus Christ will still be the Savior of the world. The gospel will still need to be preached. The tomb is still empty. The Bible still contains all of the answers to human problems. And prayer will still work. I'd like to close with a prayer for our nation. Following this prayer, we'll stand for our a song, and then I invite the elders to come forward, and then following that, our shepherds have a prayer as well. Let us pray. Loving Father and God, we humble ourselves, and we confess that you are our God, and there is no other. Acknowledge your sovereign control over all things. In these troubled times, we confess that we are experiencing fear and anxiety. But you are greater than all our fears. As your holy word reminds us, greater is the Holy Spirit within us than the evil one within the world. We love you, and we, and we believe, Almighty God, that your word is true. We turn from our sins of pride and lust and anger, and fear, and ask for your forgiveness and for your wise counsel. Not just now, but for always. We pray for our country in this presidential election. We pray for peace and safety for all, and your divine intervention in the affairs of men. We seek your will, O God, and not our own, knowing that all things work together for good and your glory because we are called and loved by you. We declare that the American government rests on your shoulders. We decree that you, as our sovereign God and loving Father, know all things. We put our trust in you alone. And we beg you, hear our prayer. Forgive our sins and heal our land. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.